Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, folks and music nerds. Thanks for joining me. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Kevin Bright. If you have not listened to part one, none of this, I mean none of this, is going to make any sense. So get on over, back to where you get your podcast from, go get part one, listen to it, get caught up. That one's going to cut off right where this one picks up. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start this episode in a couple minutes with the same song that the last one ended with. So that's like a perfect segue. Okay, so that's what's happening. I don't need to introduce you to anything about Kevin Bright. You already know, because you listened to part one. Let's do it. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, You can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, Also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.
tell me a bit about your history with slide guitar. Like, is it something that you had played as a kid? Like, uh, maybe we can talk a bit about when you when you first started playing guitar too. But but in particular, slide guitar um, mm. was that something that was like early stage for you, or did you come into it later after you'd been playing for a long time? No, it was early. It was early. I've been playing guitar for a long time, but it was getting my teens, you know, 14, mm-hmm. uh, even maybe a little younger. I remember in my first rock concert I went to, I lived in, in uh, I was born in Northern Ontario. So the nearest town to me was Sudbury. And that was about Ooh. an hour away, an hour yeah. south of where I lived. Okay. And, uh, in a subway arena, they brought people in. There's a certain era where a lot of people, if you played in Toronto, there's a good chance a lot of the people would play in Sudbury. Okay. And uh, in the first person I saw play there, was my first concert was Johnny Winter. And I was, nice. Yeah, uh, I was going, I was in grade six. And uh, that, I couldn't believe that. Like, that was totally riveting and it was 1975 or 1976 and I saw him play and he played a firebird he had two firebirds and one of them he played slide on That was one of the most powerful things I'd ever heard. It was, I mean, you can imagine that, albino playing it. You know, I I couldn't believe it, how great it was, a great band. And uh, I bought a glass slide, and I started playing slide around that time. So it was, you know, grade six. And then I was really into it. I didn't really know about open tunings. I didn't know that's what they did. I thought they just played on like you know just a normal standard guitar and then yeah. once i got you know later on like in in high school i you know i i heard about they actually tuned their guitar to an open chord when i did that <laughs> i i thought oh, this is insane so and a friend uh-huh. of mine came to my house i was 14 and he said that his parents had this old metal guitar it had one string on it and, <laughs> and the father had repaired a bus uh, full of nuns and there's something wrong with the bus and they paid him by giving him this national guitar wow. and, he, and he gave me the guitar and I had that guitar that's on empty so I was playing slide guitar uh, at that time so, that, so okay. you know like really took it seriously you know uh, when I learned about open open tunings like the 14 Okay, so when you saw Johnny Winter and you kind of like got into the whole idea and you bought a slide, yeah. um, you know Johnny always played an open tuning, as far as I know. So, what, did you ever sit down and like figure people's stuff out note for note? Were you ever that kind of guy? Oh yeah, tons. Okay, yeah. So, did you find that frustrating as a slide player? Was it weird not understanding that they were tuning the guitar differently? Totally, it was so confusing. Yeah, and I didn't do very much of that. Like, slide guitar was, um, I did so much transcription work, like, you know, learning people's solos on guitar. And slide, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't, 
I, I, even though I loved, love, love, love Johnny Winter, I loved uh-huh. him. I, like, it was so, it was so beautiful um, to see him uh, play, and it was a height of his ability too. Like he was right, playing yeah. amazing. But I, I, I didn't have a thing about blues guitar, like blues slide guitar. It wasn't uh-huh. my thing. Like I didn't, I, you know. Later on, I loved it, of course. But you know, in the years I was learning how to play guitar and slide guitar, I wasn't too interested in uh, blues slides. So I, those are the things I kind of didn't list. Like I didn't transcribe. Like I love Lo, love Low George, okay, and I love those songs. But I didn't learn of Low George, so I, I was. You know, it wasn't my thing, uh, blues. So, but it did confuse me when I heard Highway 61. I heard Joey Winters playing on. I couldn't figure out what he was doing. I thought, why? How is he be able to play a triad? Like that, I can hear how the triad was voiced. That it was yeah. a root, a third, and a five. It wasn't like, like you know, a standard tuning where it's you know, it's a five, a tonic, and a third. Like I can hear it. That yeah. somehow he had the root miraculously was on top, the right. high note, and I couldn't figure out that. And somebody said, "Do you ever try open tuning? <laughs> what the hell's open tuning?" <laughs> you know, and that was. You know, fourteen, fifteen. But like I said, it wasn't slide thing. wasn't something uh, electric. Uh, sorry, blues slide wasn't something I was really interested in at the time. Were there other slide players that you were interested in aside from Johnny Winter? You well, I love pedal steel guys a lot. Oh, I thought okay. like the, the guys like Northern Ontario was a, was a rainbow country. You know, it was a lot of country music up there, and I loved listening to um, Hank Williams. I love you know, I loved. I loved listening to that, to the to lap steel. Like I thought that was really funky and really mm-hmm. harmonic, like really dense. Like I couldn't believe the clusters and mm-hmm. you know all that stuff that was happening with the six tunings, right? Like I didn't. Yeah. Again, I didn't know but that to me was a totally different thing. The way I do, your cheating heart will tell on you. So that was that was the things I was really into was as okay. far as slide. I love the sound of of uh, pedal steel. It just made it made you want to cry. It was so beautiful. Up in the yeah. nosebleeds, you know, yeah, man. Totally. John Huey and people like that. Like you, you hear them way high, and you think, how do they? It's so gorgeous. That yeah. I love that. So that yeah. was the things I was into okay. as far as listening to. I, I love that when you were starting to play slide, like you've developed this thing now where you're doing a lot of fretting behind the slide, mm-hmm. but not, but not like 
sunny land earth or anything like it's a totally different thing um were you developing that in order to pull off some of the the chordal things that you were hearing and unable to do on the slide in the in a standard tuning yeah exactly there was there was that and it was also pitch because if if you had a guitar that was in tune you know intonated it was your anchor to be in tune like you can always if you if you fretted a note and you're and you're sliding with another finger, you you can pitch. It was a really great way to pitch. And it was also really psychological because you could play, uh, you know, depending where you put your slide, you can fret more than one note. And then you can, if you give it a little bit of a warble on top, it sounds like you're, you're barring the whole chord. So you can get some pretty outrageous chords if you're open D it doesn't matter what tuning you're in you can wherever you learn you can get like a you can get a seven sharp nine voicing and there's only sure. one of the notes out of the five notes you're hitting on the on the neck of the guitar that has a slide on it but uh-huh. if you warble it it sounds like all those it sounds like that whole chord has a slide on it but it isn't it, it, right, gives, you right. the, it gives you the impression that that is the you know that is like wow that's really how do you get what, what is that to me but it really is it's not that it's just figuring out where those things sit on the guitar and you go well how can I grab that So, so, but I was doing that because I, I didn't even with even with the way I play slide, that uh, you know it's you you can mark out where the things sit, where the chords sit, yeah. but the nature of angling the slide is a little bit more difficult because you're not right. I don't play it like a like a lap, so you it's difficult to do it. Um, so the only way you can really get it is by fretting some of those notes. So that's one thing I developed in my slide playing was learning how to do that, to play, you know, as harmonic as I could with a slide on where it sounds like, wow, that sounds like the whole guitar is tuned to, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you're going for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The only guy that does anything remotely like what you do with that is Tronzo was, but I, I can't imagine you would have heard him until like way later, right? Yeah, I did, and I worked with him. Like I, I worked with David. Uh, he's a very nice guy, and he, but he plays. As far as I know, uh, I think I'm pretty sure he tunes the guitar to a standard tuning, except for the high string is down to a D. That's right. Yeah. Right. So I think it's. I think I think he's E B. Sorry, E A D G B D. I think that's Although he, sometimes he also, from what I understand, he also tunes standard and then he'll tune the G up to a G sharp only. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so he he's totally in that thing uh, of that thing of um, of of you know he 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 considers himself a, a jazz player, and right. he can you know he can play monk tunes and on on slide, and he has exactly the same thing. Like he's he works it's like uh, 
like that. Like, I, 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 I met him, um, geez, I think about 20 years ago. And uh-huh. we did a, a couple of festivals. That's, that actually brings me to something with another album that I love of yours, Super Generous, which is like mm. totally impossible to find now. But yeah. uh, you do an interesting thing on there by taking um, a couple of standards. Like what, what's on there? There's Car- there's a version of Caravan, I think, on there. There's a version of A-Train oh. that I love. Oh, thank um, you. Home on the Range? <laughs> Home on the Range, yeah. So yeah. When, you're, when you're interpreting tunes like that, you have a way of like kind of boiling them down to like very rootsy elements, yeah. but, and then sort of taking them, sort of deconstructing them from there. Yeah. How do you, how do you approach playing tunes like that? Well, it, it's kind of nice. Like, um, it's nice to, to do when you think a song like, uh, a train, it, it is such a beautiful melody. I mean, like it, you, you, we, we somehow get lost in how beautiful, uh, cause those songs were we've been played so much that mm. it's, you 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 just hear the song by itself where you play it slow, and the melody is so haunting. Even songs like um, songs that people would you know uh, jazz standards like people play Cherokee and they play Cherokee mm-hmm. really fast, right? Or, or Donna Lee or whatever Giant Steps. Um, but these songs are really beautiful songs, and if you slow something down and you kind of say, well, okay, here's a A train, we'll do it. I remember we did it in G. And it goes G da 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 A seven. That yeah. is such a beautiful da 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 da. It's so sad and beautiful, but it's da blum ba down da 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 da. Something about slowing it down that it, mm-hmm. that real that just those those notes and that second chord really wants badly for the it's the five and it to be flattened. So right. I would never really get that when it's at tempo the way the way I've always heard it. So okay, uh, yeah. I wanted to do it. Uh, you know, I, when I brought it in, I said mm-hmm. to Cyril, if we could do it like it's a campfire song, like if I were to right. sing it, I'm at a campfire. And he and I would just, you know, the, the song is so beautiful. That's how I, I wanted to bring it in. It's, it's just really slow, like a, almost like a a dirge. We had, we had um, Cassandra Wilson came in and sang on Home on the Range. Right. And uh, she wanted to hear some of the record because I, I don't know if I was working. I think I wasn't. I'd worked with her before. Cyril and uh-huh. I both worked with her. But I don't think I was. I had stopped touring with her at that moment. She came in to, and uh, she wanted to hear it. And then we played A Train. I don't really know if she liked it. All I know is <laughs> when it gets to the bridge and it goes. Da 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 da. The four chord. Ba, 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 ba. Well, I had the guitar again, and as I was playing the guitar again, I was hitting a switch that was making it 
go like, and she said, I loved it. She said, sounds like a garbage truck backing up. <laughs> and, and I thought she gets it, you know? Um, so, so that tune was like that one or, um, or what's the other one we did? We did, uh, like, caravans uh, on there caravan. too, right? Yeah. One beer, it was beer and bow and uh-huh. national. Yeah. And that one just seems like, again, like the national, you know, it's, it's almost the national could be an Arabic instrument. You know, it's just something about the way you make it, it sound sounds like that. that you can, it just feels like that could be an instrument from that, mm-hmm. from that area of the world. seemed to really fit the vibe of that song and then um, yeah then uh, Home on the Range so, was, I thought you know Stephen Foster's you know, you know yeah. something that we can in the mandola was perfect so again mm-hmm. they, 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 it's almost about being some sort of casting you know it's have uh-huh. the actors come in you have the instruments come in reading for the part right. and those instruments seem to just really and once you hear them it's almost like the arrangement, it knows what to do immediately because you go, oh, yeah. You hear a strummy, strummy guitar on A train. It just is one of those things that you go, oh, yeah, that would sound really great if we had a guitar again. And, but it comes from, <laughs> the, from that, it's, the production is all in the tempo, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, totally. I agree. Uh, can you just tell me a little bit about that record, like how you recorded it and how it came to be? Like you and Ciro worked together on in Cassandra's band or in a different band? Yeah, well, we worked. We did. We did several records together, uh, uh-huh. where we he and I were sidemen on it. We did. Um, okay. Yeah, we did. Uh, uh, Patty Scalfa's record together. We did Janis Ian record together. We did. Jet Boy Nichols, and we did uh, Cassandra, a couple of Holly Cole record. That's where I met him. Why in the darkness do I see so clearly? You have not gone away. They won't grow cold like so. Uh, he asked me to come to New York to do a show uh, at Joe, not Joe's Pub, at uh, the Knitting Factory. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, through a, a mutual friend of ours. They had Blue Note Records were coming down to check them out. Mm-hmm. And so so we they needed somebody to open. So I, I just drove down and he and I didn't have any songs per mm-hmm. se. So we just couldn't go up and we were going to improvise. Because the Knitting mm-hmm. Factory at that time was all about that. Yeah, so, right. So we went and we opened for uh, Harriet Tubman. That was uh, Brandon okay. Ross's band. And they had interest from Blue Note. And uh, Michelle Nadegicello was there. And mm-hmm. she 
was sitting with or near uh, Eli. I don't know Eli's last name. One of the guys, one of the A and R guys from Blue Note. Okay. And Ciro and I got on the stage, and she freaked out and loved <laughs> this thing. We didn't. We weren't called super generous. We were just he and I. <laughs> and uh, she was being demonstrative, and the guy Eli from Blue yeah. heard her and signed us. Uh, we got we got like it's like the old days, you know. And you, you hear about these stories, and you go, oh, "Yeah, it didn't happen." Well, it did, and we got signed to Blue Note on one show. And Cyril, who's quite a character, he would off mic always say things that would suggest that we actually had songs. He'd say uh-huh. to me, he "Goes, Kevin, look, man, let's do this song. <laughs> you know the one that starts off in the A minor seven flat five. Let's do that one." <laughs> <laughs> right, but we don't have any songs. Like we didn't have, other than having dinner together, that was all we did together was having some dinner. Uh-huh. So we, uh-huh. I go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. At least you knew the first chord. <laughs> I didn't, and I never played that chord in the song. <laughs> like that A minor seven five five would never play. He would just say, I laugh, and I go, yeah, only that one, okay. And uh, and then we got signed to uh, to Blue Note, and then he and I went to uh, New York, and we recorded at um, this great guy, uh, Joe Blaney, uh-huh. uh, his studio on Thompson. And again, it was an eight track recording. Um, yeah, that's all you need, man. Yeah, that's all you need. Exactly, the Beatles only needed four. Yeah. So we did. So we did that, and the, and it was, um, yeah, that was it. And then the record came out, and they were really excited. Blue Note were really super excited, and uh, and uh, they didn't do anything. And they were so excited they didn't do anything. <laughs> no, they didn't. They were. We, we went out for dinner, and uh, some things. I don't know what happened, but uh, Lundell was such a fan. Bruce Lundell was such a fan, yeah. and we, it was going to be great. And then nothing happened. We had a manager. We didn't play. We didn't tour. And wow. then the reason why you probably can't find the record is that I bought the masters. Ah, okay. From, and the only reason why I got the Masters and Blue Note is impenetrable. Their 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 whole uh, library is massive, and uh, and I don't think it was very smart now in retrospect that I bought the Masters. But the only reason why I got the Masters because Nora Jones, uh, I was one day telling her, man, I'd like to get the Masters for that too super generous because I could maybe do something more than what they'll ever do. Because the record mm-hmm. had already died, and I thought it's a shame that nobody's going to hear this record, and maybe I can do something with it, and I can reissue it. That was my idea, right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, somebody at Blue Note got married, and and, uh, and uh, she went she went up to the to the one of the guys at Blue Note and said, "I think you should sell Kevin back his masters." And really? they did. <laughs> nice. It was because Nora was doing so great on Blue Note, and she's so great, right? She's such an yeah. amazing, 
friend and such a good person that she thought, oh, I'll just do it, Kevin. They're not returning his calls or whatever that was. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and I got a quick claim, a quick claim contract, and I got the masters with all the, with all the pictures and all, all the stuff. And so that's nice. the reason why you can't get a copy because I own the masters. <laughs> 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 well, I'll, send you, I'll send you a copy. <laughs> no, 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 I have it. I have it. Oh, you have it. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. Uh, okay, well, that's good having someone like Nora Jones throw a little weight around for you. That sometimes that's what you need, right? Well, yeah, exactly. It's nice <laughs> to have a. It's, she's a good person, but it's nice to have a friend like that. Anyway, who's just yeah. kind, you know, such a kind, 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 kind person, right? Can you tell me a bit about the the gig with her, like how it came about, and and obviously that was a bit of a game changer for you, and you spent a lot of years uh, working with yeah. her both in the studio and and live. Like, how did that come about as a as a gig in the first place? Well, again, where she came to see Super Generous, she oh. came to see Super Generous for playing at the Knitting Factory, and another time we were now Super Generous. She came, and uh, she liked really liked Super Generous a lot, and she. Um, she was waiting tables. She was a she was a she was oh. making a living in a restaurant or a bar, I think. And um, she just got signed the Blue Note, and uh, she was a huge fan of a record that I did. That I, of, um, I was on, I should say, it's not my record. It was uh, Cassandra Wilson's New Moon Daughter, and yeah. she wanted. She really loved the way that record sounded, and so she hired me to be on the record. Hanging from the poplar tree Yeah, that's that's how I got it, and then you know, I I didn't know I didn't know anything. I I, I got the demo. That's come away with me. The first record. Yeah, that was a that was I went to New York to record that record with. It was a great band. It was um, Brian Blade played drums. Lee Alexander, who was her at time um, boyfriend, great yeah. guy. He was a, a bass player, great songwriter, and Bill Frizzell play guitar and me and her playing piano Nora playing Uh piano and uh, I had heard the demos they sent me the demos and I thought they were spectacular but I kept my mouth shut because I thought you know I personally I thought these are so heavy why don't they just put these out but you want to work you got to work so I (laughs) and she didn't want to play piano on this stuff like she kind of was tired she wanted something different Everybody was very, very excited about it. The record was beautiful. We all got along amazing. We had a great week 
together. Uh-huh. We were like a little family. We ate together. We stayed up on this mountain, this this, this place in uh, outside of Woodstock, and it was a, a studio called Malaire, and it was uh-huh. on top of a mountain. And the guy owned the mountain. It was gorgeous, and, and we all great food and just beautiful conversation. It was great, and she was so happy, happy, happy. And the producer. Craig Street mm-hmm. was very excited, and I loaded up my car, Steve, and I, I loaded the car up to the brim with all my gear, and I got mm-hmm. home, and when I got to the house, and I think Trish was pregnant again, um, <laughs> she had the phone. She said, it's Craig. And I, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like I, I took me maybe nine hours to get home. Yeah. Hey, yeah. how's it going? He goes, and he says, he has a really low voice. He says, they hate it. Oh shit! <laughs> I said, "Who? The, the company Blue Note hate the record." Oh my and was, god! And so they basically—I don't want to use the word "fired" him because he's so—you he, know—there wasn't a fire. They just—they went with Reef Martin, to, right. to, and they went back to the demos. Right. That's right. I, yeah, I remember hearing about that. Okay. Yeah, and then uh, and then they end up keeping from the original sessions. They end up keeping three songs. And I'm on those three songs with Bill and Brian. Do you remember which songs those are that you're on on that record? The song's called uh, Feeling the Same Way, uh, Come Away With Me. On a cloudy day In fields where the yellow grass grows knee high So won't you try to come Come away So like the who knew, right? And, and, but somehow in all of that You know, it all worked out Blue Note were They, they, they were kind of funny Because they called They said that I remember this They said that It sounded like a Like a a bar mitzvah band. <laughs> How is that possible? You know, with Brian Blade, Brian Blade and Bill Frizzell and Lee and whoever oh else, like me, that could sound like a bar mitzvah band, but they, they use the word hilarious. bar mitzvah band. Yeah, and she didn't really? play piano. Imagine her stuff without her playing piano. There was, the piano That's was weird. way mixed back. And so there was a lot of guitars, like a lot of guitar. But that's what, we were kind of greenlighted that way, and it was really beautiful, and it it, uh-huh. it made for a really great record. I don't know if it would have sold thirty million copies, right? Like her record right. did sell. Yeah. So I I I think somebody knew something, you know, that they uh-huh. really whoever the A and R guy was on that on the you know on the record that I'm that I wasn't on. Right. Uh, I think they really had a great concept as to who they thought Nora Jones was, uh-huh. because uh, you know the proof is in the pudding, right? That they, yeah, well, you know. So guess, who knew yeah. at the time? I thought they were crazy. I thought right. what? Right. I thought they were wrong. This is really great. She's really happy with the record, and blah blah blah. But no, I think uh-huh. I think there was something, some some good A and there. A&R. Yeah, maybe. But you ended up with the gig in her band anyway. So uh, Yeah, they called me and Adam Adam Levy and I yeah. were a team. We're like a little mm-hmm. horn section, he and I yeah. and he's he's fabulous. And then we had yes. we had a great time and we made another record with her and, and I was on the third record with her. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was a good team, really yeah. good yeah. team, like fun and and really super. Uh, always something different and always something great. Like you know, she's kind of the not kinda. She is the real deal. So she you is. know, there's no. It's always very musical and fun, and you know, and everybody got along uh-huh. really beautifully there. So. I can't remember if it's the second or third record that you play on a track with Dolly Parton. Yeah. Did you actually track it with Dolly Parton? Yeah, it's the way it was. The way that song sounds, that's exactly how it was recorded. That was nerve-wracking. Because she's so heavy. She's so heavy. And she came into the studio and she has those really big breasts. And um, (laughs) when she came in, but I always say it like, I would say, you know, the really big nose, you know, like, so (laughs) when she came in, like a reef at the time, I think was about 75, 76 Uh and the reef looking at her breasts and they had a studio (laughs) dog and the dog was looking at her breasts and everybody felt (laughs) bad about looking at her breasts, but they were just astounding, like, because they were massive. And, and, and at the end of the session, I said to her, I said, uh, I told her she sang like a bird. Uh-huh. And she said, what kind of bird would that be, honey? And I said, one with really big breasts. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did. I did. And once it has begun, it won't stop until it's done. Sneak it in. There's a silver moon. Came a little too soon. Oh, for me to bear. It shines brightly on my bed And the shadows overhead Won't let me sleep as long as it's there it just creep on Her producer came And like uh-huh. a, she had a whole crew with her And yeah. everybody's a little bit on edge, right? Uh-huh. And uh, we're, we're recording at Avatar in New York And she's singing it And it, was, it became really obvious that whatever was going to happen was going to happen. There was no recutting it. Uh-huh. And I, and Nora said, uh, Kevin, take the solo on. Oh, okay. And I'm, I'm nervous because, uh-huh. you know, I don't want to, I don't want to fuck it up. You know, I don't want right. to be, yeah. and I, and I don't consider myself, uh, a bluegrass guy. Right. It's pretty bluegrassy. And it's a bluegrass song. It really yeah. is. So I, Okay, so we we do it, and and so we do one take. I remember it being one or two takes. I can't remember. I don't. I think we had one incomplete, and then the second take was a take. That's right. And below the studio, uh, Avatar. Yeah, and below it, it I was, I'm sure there's still a pub. There was a pub there, and so we do the take, and there's a lot of talking. So I just take the elevator. I go downstairs. I just I had done the solo. I didn't hear anything, and I grabbed a pint of Guinness, mm-hmm. and I had a nice, you know, I drank this Guinness, and I thought, whoa, because it was obvious they weren't going to take it again. Like it was, it was really right. obvious. She had to go. Yeah. It was done, and so I go back up. I, I mean, I literally, I drank that thing down in about within five minutes. Yeah. Cause I had to calm myself because it was like it was, I got really <laughs> freaked out, and I knew when I went upstairs that they, they had isolation. They could they can get somebody else to do the solo, or yeah. ask me to do another solo or play mandolin or something. So I 
I get upstairs and they, I hear it, and everybody's really excited, and she's really excited, and that's it. That was the take, and it was really Wicked. great because I, yeah, it was, yeah, and I like it. Like I think it's, it sounds really good, and it's a beautiful. I think it's song. cool too because it's it it is like a real bluegrassy thing, but it's like unmistakably you playing that solo right in the <laughs> smack in the middle. I, of yeah, it. good news and bad news. <laughs> the good news is, <laughs> I got. funny is that when we play live I never play guitar on it I always play oh, mandolin really? yeah, yeah. I, I'm just we just defaulted back to mandolin and and on on tour um, I was really into banjo music too right so uh-huh. I, I went to Minneapolis we were playing in Minneapolis and I bought a brand new banjo I bought a Ooh. Bart Ryder a really uh-huh. good builder banjo and it's not the most appropriate banjo for bluegrass. It's it's a mountain banjo, like a like a, right. a flaying banjo, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, claw hammer banjo. And so I I get the banjo and I talk her into it. And I say, hey, listen, we're playing at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. And mm-hmm. I said, do you mind if I instead of playing uh, the mandolin solo on this song, creeping in, do you mind if I play the banjo? And she goes, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> Prince. Prince comes to the show because Prince was a Nora Jones fan, and I could see where he was sitting. He was sitting at the at the uh, control booth, okay, at the mixing console. Yeah, and uh, he and he has his fingers like he's praying, and his fingers are in, under his lip, both hands, okay, <laughs> and he's studying. Okay, we come up to that song. Okay, the banjo has never been on the stage. Okay, uh-huh. I'm excited. I'm really excited to play the banjo. Right? My idea. <laughs> so the lights hit the banjo. The banjo's never on the stage. It starts, every string starts to go completely out of tune. Oh, and it's shit. coming up to the solo. So it gets to a point where I know that maybe on the banjo there's only two notes, two strings that are in tune. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure I know which ones they are. <laughs> okay, so I'm playing, and it gets a solo. They're gone. So I'm now, the solo is just me tapping the drum with my steel pick. <laughs> I look up, Prince is gone. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that is a great claim to fame. Yeah, he left the building. I mean, he's totally gone. Like, there's not, like, I, I think he's sitting there. I, I, he's probably the kind of guy, probably was the kind of guy that never really finishes dinner either. Like, he probably get halfway through and then just gets up and leaves, right? Sure. So, he probably even shows he loves. He probably stays for, like, three songs and he goes. Yeah. And so, I, all I could think of is he was thinking about leaving. Then once he yeah. starts hearing that banjo and... He's, 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 I, I he's done. Go. <laughs> I can't. This poor guy. This yeah. poor guy's dying. And not a word was said. Nobody said anything after. Like, at the end of the show, like, I was, I felt like I was humiliated, right? Totally mm-hmm. humiliated. And I, like, the dog, the tail, the, you know, the tail, gone. Mine, 
the tail was completely taken off. Like I, yeah. I just wanted somebody to say that was the dumbest fucking idea. <laughs> and they did. They actually did worse by not saying anything. And I, and I couldn't bring it up because I didn't want to. Right. I, I completely imagined a conversation that would be something like, <laughs> "What were you thinking?" Like, or somebody saying, "You know what, Kevin? You got you have some serious, serious balls to, to take this on." <laughs> but nobody said anything, which was worse. Uh, so I just remembered thinking, "I'm never again, ever again." You know, pull my head up so high. That I'll get a, I get my head shut off, and then of course right. I've made a career of doing this. Actually, <laughs> so I'm, I'm constantly getting either either blown off or partially blown yeah, off. That sure, was it's a, a good thing. This was gone. <laughs> my head was completely taken off. Eventually, like, did you leave that band? It was just was it too much road work or something, or did she just sort of go in a different direction, or what happened with with uh, that coming to an end? I had uh, three children. And the three yeah. ki- at the time, and three kids were really young, uh, all around. Of course, they weren't the same age, uh, but they were close. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's that two years, two years, two years. And um, that was one thing. And I was finding that I was having conversations with them that was a little stilted. And it was yeah. it really bugging me. Like I, I was getting now, uh, you know, one word answers to questions, right. so the things that were somewhat significant right how was your yeah. how was your first day at school good and I, that, was, yeah. that was killing that was killing me and I, I thought uh, I'm not gonna get another go around at this and I'd had children later on in my life I wasn't having kids at 24 and I was I was now my last child was born when I was 40 mm-hmm. and um, I didn't want I I knew that was the end of my you know we're not gonna have any more kids and I thought that was that was really really big um, for me was that uh, and everything was great because it was she, uh, Nora was about to release her second record um, and a song of mine was recorded on the record uh, that I wrote for her that helps yeah but I I didn't she recorded a lot of songs Stephen and I didn't want I didn't want I wanted her to know early on after the song was recorded I wanted to know that I wasn't going to be touring so I, I didn't want this I didn't want the song on the record and then then I, 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 quit is the wrong word to use I wasn't I just wasn't going to tour that record truth spoken whispers will tear you apart no matter how hard you resisted it never rains when you want it to You humble me, Lord You humble me, Lord So, I wanted her to know that So, because I didn't, I didn't feel that very fair Because I didn't know if she was recording the song Because she loved me and I was in the band I was part of her family I wanted her to, you know I didn't want anybody to be hurt so I and they put that song on the record she really liked the song and also she's like I said you know she's a really 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 great person so yeah. uh, but I left it for the family but I also I had things I wanted to do like I wanted uh-huh. to I had this thing uh, John and the sisters um, and I thought 
that's something I wanted to get behind because I had recorded the record while I was on tour with Nora and I, I felt like I'd recorded, you know, several records where I could, I never got behind them because I was busy mm-hmm. on the road with somebody. And yeah. I really thought, you know, like I said, you know, uh, late thirties, early forties, now's the time for me maybe just, just to do something that is kind of my own. So there was yeah. that too. I really liked them a lot, and nobody wanted me to leave the tour. My, my even you know my wife didn't want me to leave the tour. She thought, "Oh really? We'll make we'll make we always make it. We always make it. We always yeah. as a family we always make it." And there was no pressure, and so she was so she was completely one hundred percent supportive of of that, but of me sticking around. But I I didn't feel like I really felt it was time to give it a break. And I would love if you could just tell me a bit about. Uh, growing up with your brothers and playing in bands and like oh. just what your what your early musical experience was like and who who your influences would have been like when you were first starting the guitar I think that's kind of important to, to oh yeah to well uh, yeah I well I grew up in uh, a big family uh, seven children I'm the youngest of seven and seven. Uh, two parents that were musical and uh, my I have twin brothers who are the they're the ones that are up from me they're two years older than I and they, we all started music around the same time and we all went to Toronto around the same time because we had heard about this pretty cool school in Toronto that they called it was the, it was Canada's Berkeley it was a right. school called Humber College and yeah. uh, so I got accepted there and all my my twin brothers went there as well, and we didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't stick around too long there. Uh, I got I got some work. I started playing, and then but we had a band uh, called the Bright Brothers, and we played around uh, for a bit, and that and that that was good. We 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 were signed to seems like so many different labels, and uh, <laughs> we didn't get it. You know, it was it was kind of miserable at times because we couldn't seem to get you know, uh, the success that we needed just to, just to kind of, you know, be musicians, call ourselves musicians where you can pay a phone bill, play music. Yeah. And we, the band wasn't really, at times it worked, but not. And then, but the stuff up there in Northern Ontario, the stuff I was listening to was a lot of American music. Like, cause I, I had all the records from, um, from my brothers and my sister. So it was all That's great, handy. great music. And, and Northern yeah. Ontario is, there's some things that were really big up there, and I don't know why. I think it may be because of the CBC, but like Leonard Cohen was big. Huh. But also country music was really big, which I didn't dig as a kid. Like, I didn't really, I wasn't really, I wasn't really, it's now really hip to say that, oh, George Jones. Yeah, George. Right. But when right. I was a kid, I didn't really like him. Like, I didn't, I didn't really, I wanted to rock. I wanted to, yeah. you know, and he, I, like I said to you earlier, you know, Johnny Winter, and from Johnny Winter came, you use that, like so many people came from to Johnny Winter, Ego Winter, then from Ego Winter, there was, you know, then somehow there was connection with Little Feet, and with that, there was Rare Earth, and then there was all the stuff we listened to on BLK from Detroit, you know, 
all that great music. So all that stuff was there in uh, this little town of ours of uh, 250 people. You know, it's yeah. Uh, I don't know how that worked out, but that's how we uh, that's how we got out. That's how uh-huh. we got out of that town. It was just because of music, really. It was uh, there's nobody else really playing up there. There's definitely no way to make a living. Uh-huh. But we sort of we kind of saw our path as how we could get out and never go back. Okay. You know, as far as the influences go, I was also wondering about like like ja- like were you into jazz guitarists and stuff like that, or or was that not really a thing for you? No, I loved it. Uh, that was that was around. Uh, Frank Zappa was a big one. Oh, yeah. Like uh, I, I oh, remember really? okay. in 1977, I don't know what happened. I, it must have been a con- some sort of contractual dispute he had with Warner Brothers, but they released 76, 77. They released so many Zappa records, and that's yeah. when I got tuned into him. Like, and because of that, again, like, like almost like the Johnny Winter stuff, you um, you learn about people because of one guy. about George Duke and you found but George Duke was into this but right. he was in George Duke was into uh, into Campbell Adley then Campbell Adley he played sax for Miles Davis Miles Davis he had John Coltrane so around 15 or so I, I I got into Pat Martino and I just thought he was I couldn't believe it when I heard him play guitar because I I never heard anybody play guitar like that just it was a uh, it was the era of fusion, big time. You know, there, there was Eleventh yeah. House, there was uh, the Mahavishnan, there was Return to Forever, yeah. and uh, all those things. I I wasn't really I liked the Mahavishnan, but I wasn't really into them because I heard I felt spoiled by Pat Martino because I heard his Joyce Lake. That band, he had called Joyce Lake, and I just loved it. I, he was, to me, a real jazz guy. Like, he didn't really have a rock thing. He was like a jazz guy who had this... So, as a guitar player, I loved him, and then all the guys that he was into, I got into, like Wes Montgomery right. and Grant Green. Okay. This is a time of Van Halen. 
you know. Right, yeah. A, a, eruption came out, and everybody in Northern Ontario were into Van Halen. And I, I, you know, I could definitely appreciate it and go, oh, that guy's great. Like, listen to that. Like, I didn't, I didn't hear anybody play guitar like that. But I, my, um, my dance card was filled so much so that I had like uh, I was always transcribing. I was learning how to write things out and, and learning it myself. And just, I didn't have any teachers, so I was learning and coming up with these concepts of how I thought these guys must think. Like I really got into this. I just started seeing all these really interesting. Um, I don't want to say patterns, but because that's the wrong word. But it's, but it's just um, I just thought that everything in jazz was sad. And I thought that everything in bluegrass was happy, no matter what. And everything <laughs> in rock was kind of bluesy. But jazz is the one that was perplexing because I thought everything I hear, John Coltrane just sounded so sad to me. And so everything I equated, everything to what these guys played as being really minor. So I learned how to convert everything to minor. So when I, when I hear blues, I go, and it was, this is really funny because... I would just I would think that Pat Martino would play so sad over a joyous blues. How does he do that? And I thought because he's playing kind of like minor ideas over uh -huh. dominant chords. So I learned how to actually kind of mathematically figure out how you convert the wildest chord to the simplest form to a minor yeah. thing. And then years and years and years and years and years later, a friend of mine studied with Pat Martino and he showed me some of the books that oh. Pat had written. And Pat converted everything to minor. In the same way that you did? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, same way. Yeah, like I, I just thought, I, I thought that was something that he, I just thought I'd stumbled on something that was like, you know, Really, like, like I, I don't think I realize that's what a lot of people are doing. They just say, "Well, the chord is a you know, it's a G altered, which means it has sharp five, a flat five, a flat nine, a sharp nine is full." And then I thought, "Well, wait a minute. If I play A flat minor, it covers all those notes. Yes. It really simplifies. I'm doing this natural transposition in my brain as to how that would work." Then I I, I look at this guy's notes, and he has. My friend would ask Pat about um, these altered chords, and I see Pat's notes in his handwriting convert to minor, A flat minor. I was pretty blown, pretty blown away with that. A guy from Northern Ontario who knew nothing, really. <laughs> that's that was my. I'm not saying I'm a genius, okay. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm close to it. No, I'm not saying that. No, but I'm saying that, that it's kind of interesting because that's, that's the way I heard. So that was a really big thing. That was a big deal listening to that kind of stuff and, and John Coltrane and as a kid and but I really think all that came from Frank Zappa because I loved him so much that I uh -huh. and it was instrumental records like I, everything he did I just thought was great and every time I said who's this George Duke and who's you know who's the Fowler brothers you're always following that thread and you're you're exactly. allowed at any point no matter where you live especially now gateways man I was kind of amazed when I really um well, I heard Steve Ray Vaughan for the first time because I thought it was Albert King. Right. Like, I yeah. couldn't. I I was convinced that somebody had unearthed uh, Albert King uh, when right. I heard how much Steve Ray Vaughan loved Albert King. You can hear it. Drive home me inside 
It's beautiful. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's such a... Because, of course, he's his own guy, too. His way he plays rhythm. But I love the fact that when you, you get interview with Stevie Vaughan, he, you know, he throws that out. The Albert King was sure huge does. for him. Yeah. You know? And you can yeah. really hear the respect he was giving that guy, you know? Yeah. What's next for you? Like, what's coming up? What are you, what are you working on now? Like, what are we going to... Well, I'm working on next. a new record. I'm done. I think I'm done the writing. It's called Stella Bellastrada, and it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing. It's a, it's it's searching for the perfect guitar. And so I thought, if I made a record that was about the Stella Bellastrada, which is a guitar called it's a beautiful road star, and. Um, Joey Anazello, who is a beautiful luthier, I know you. I know you know who he is. He yes. um, he's building as we speak the Stella Bellastrada, and we're, it's, it's all in Italian. Like the so it's like it looks like a, a like, it looks like a um, an Italian roadster. It's like a car. Okay. It's beautiful, and I wanted to make a record that's a big band slide record, like with strings and. Uh, and horns. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm 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 about nine songs in. I thought I was uh-huh. ten songs in, but one of them is kind of sucks. So so it's ten. <laughs> so it's ten songs, and now I'm in arrangement mode. Like I'm arranging and arranging yeah. in the sense of getting the studios together. And but the songs are are, are I, I think they're I'm pretty much there with that. So that's. That's pretty big for me at that, and Johnny Goldtooth's going to hit the road this summer with uh-huh. six states. Not a lot, nice. but six states going nice. to go out west, you know, to uh-huh. Vancouver and a little bit out east, and then okay. I get to put on the uh, the fake tooth and the makeup on my face. I kind of love that. Oh, you do the I, full thing. Nice. Yeah, we're marketing one, and then do some session stuff, Steve. It's busy, you know. I'm trying to keep myself yeah. busy. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and talking. I feel like we just scratched the surface. There's a million other things I could talk to you I about. Know, I, I know, I know. Well, and it, yeah. it's great to talk to you. I, I haven't, I haven't, uh, you and I haven't had a chance to uh, hang out for a while. It'd be nice to, I know. next time you're in my hood, or if I'm in your hood, we got to get together. All right. Well, thanks, man. Hey, you Safe travels care. and good luck with the record. And we'll talk oh. to you soon. Steve, nice talking to you. See you later. Right, that was fun. I love talking to that guy. That was Kevin Bright. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with him. Go listen to his music, check out all his projects, and we will see you next month for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers